0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Starting, uh, I guess, as the opportunity provides itself, I'll be able to uh, continue through this whole passage, uh, starting in verse 9. And uh, we're not going to deal with the whole thing today. I just want to lay the foundation for that and hopefully, when the next opportunity avails itself, we would uh, continue on looking at what I'm calling the marks of the cross because when a believer has come to faith in Christ, or when, a, when an unbeliever has come to faith in Christ and now is a believer, there is emblazoned upon him in his life and his heart certain indelible marks that cannot be erased, and that signify who he is. Our key words today for worshipers in training is love, character, and good. And we'll begin reading in just a moment. So when he was 13 years old, Elmer Elmer joined a group of guerrilla fighters in Colombia. They were called the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC. Elmer rose to the rank of commander and remained in the FARC until 2006. Their aim was to wreak havoc for the citizens and the government of Colombia. They used armed conflict to displace and to kill any who opposed their agenda and their Marxist ideals. So as such, they've also attacked many Christians. Elmer did not like Christians. He thought they were weak and powerless because they didn't like to fight like the guerrilla fighters that he was associating himself with. In places where the church was present, the people were resistant to joining the group and carrying out their agenda. So he, along with many of his fellow guerrilla fighters, would persecute them. And they wouldn't allow them to come together in their churches. They burned their churches. They disrupted their daily lives. And they murdered many, many pastors. One day, Elmer was preparing to shoot some Christians, one by one, and he was going to throw them to the river. But when when the Christians saw Elmer and his guerrilla friends, they began to sing. Then Elmer's hand froze when he tried to pull the gun out of its holster. On many occasions, Christians that Elmer persecuted shared the gospel with him. Little by little, he began to hate Christians less and less. He began to become more interested in the things that, they were, that made them act as they did. Well, he had enemies among the government, and he also had enemies in his own group, amongst the own guerrilla fighters. And he was scared. He lived his life in fear, and he was very tired of his life. Remembering what Christians had shared with him in the past, he surrendered his life to Jesus. He repented of his sins, and a deep transformation occurred. He began to love. His family recognized it. His colleagues recognized it. His enemies also recognized it. But now he was under a new mandate to love others, and he left the guerrilla fighters forever. Now Elmer distributes Bibles to the guerrillas that once were his his, uh, companions, and he runs a Christian radio station from his home. He says, instead of being a messenger of hatred, I'm now a messenger of peace. He still has enemies amongst the guerrillas, But the Lord has promised me that he is faithful and won't allow me to go, uh, and won't let me go. He's with me and I'm safe with the Lord. And I know that there are people in the FARC who can j- turn to the Lord just as I did. I pray for them that they would want to know Christ. So what happened to Elmer? And how do we explain that Dramatic transformation that occurred in his life. Well, I submit to you, it's the same thing that's happened throughout history. All throughout history, the same story has been played out in the life of every true believer, from the disciples to the apostle Paul to the slave trader John Newton to you and I. When not all of us are out there murdering our fellow man in body, at least, and not all of us are out there with the Uh, You know, trying to uh, work out things to our own glory in the same manner that Elmer did or the same way that John Newton did or the same way that Paul did. But we were still in the same boat. We were still just as depraved, just as torn apart in our soul and just as lifeless and unwilling and unable to come to Christ. Elmer had a true encounter with the Lord Jesus and his sin was revealed to him. He's been indelibly branded with the marks of the cross. That is to say, when he encountered Christ, he put off the old man and his way of, and his way of doing things, and he put on the Lord Jesus. And he acts in a new nature and produces fruit in keeping with it. So join with me in Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're going to read verses 9 through 21, and then we'll focus back on verse 9, as the foundation of what we're going to speak of today. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So verse 9 says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. I actually prefer that verse a little bit more written in the New King James or the NASB, where it says thus, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. (coughs) Love is the primary distinguishing mark of a true believer. It's, It's the main thing that in all these laundry lists of spiritual attributes and virtues throughout Scripture, we see love usually as one of the, if not the first in the list, it's usually one of the top. So love is going to be something that when someone looks out, they're going to say, something's different about that guy because of the way he treats his fellow man. There's something different about him in the way that he shows love to others. Compare that, for instance, with the way that... um, The ancient Greek culture looked at love. In ancient Greece, physical strength and beauty were so highly valued that it's commonly believed that parents were entitled by law to abandon their children, their newborn babies, to die of exposure. They would set them out in the cold to die of exposure. It was particularly in cases of physical deformity. Uh, Many times, by law, by Greek law, strangers were allowed to adopt these babies but even at that case, they were still only bound to be a servant in the household of the master. That's how they would be raised. In Spartan society, they were a very warlike city-state in ancient Greece. Um, we've heard many stories about them, but they built their whole identity upon the Spartan soldier. So in Spartan society, they were children in the same manner were left out in the elements in this fashion as a test to see if they were tough enough to survive. They lasted through the night on a cold night. They said, this child has some inherent strength. The one that died didn't. Those who did make it, they were raised to a rigorous life in a, of a physical regime that, and training that was meant to prepare them for the elite army that that city-state was known for. Think about how widows and orphans were treated in ancient society. Why do you think that Scripture talks such a great deal about caring for widows and orphans? Why is it you know we always think about when we hear something, uh, something that is um, you know repeated in Scripture? say, man, I've heard that before. That's somewhere else. And, well, the reason is they're trying to drive home a point, just as you and I will try to uh, make a point by constantly repeating and repeating. Um, however, Scripture does that regarding widows and orphans. Why? Because they weren't being cared for. They were usually outcasts of society. Uh, we, uh, you know, and so therefore we look and we can see how particularly some of the marks of the cross, some of the love that was shown believers was how they cared for these widows and also orphans. And that even actually went all the way up into really, until like last century. You know, you think about the book Oliver uh, by Oliver Twist was written by... Um, Christmas carol man. Him. (laughs) That's funny. Ask me my name next, I won't be able to tell you. Um, Anyway, he he wrote that because it was a reaction to what he saw going on, the way he saw the orphans treated in the city in London at the time. There weren't orphanages, so to speak, of to go to. So, one of the greatest changes to a believer and one of the greatest marks of the cross is love. That's why it's written first in this passage. That's what distinguished our Elmer, the man we learned about in in the beginning. That's what distinguished him from his former life. And so, since it's so foundational, that's where we got to start. So, we're the interesting thing is in every place, we're going to look at several places in Scripture where. It talks about loving one another. It doesn't offer it up as a suggestion, if you feel like it. Rather, it's a commandment. It's an imperative. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 1 Corinthians 13.13 So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians three verse twelve says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. 1 Timothy 1.5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so it goes on. I mean, there, there's... there's the uh, verses of dealing with love and commanding us to love one another are plenty, and I could spend the rest of the time here talking about that and giving them, but you get the point. So love should so characterize a Christian that the scripture says that the one who does not have love is not a true believer. It's a litmus test. First John 3:14: We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You abide in death. That is your dwelling place. That is where you live. You are not in the faith if you do not express and have love for your fellow man. It's very easy for us to see that, you know, we talked about a bit in Sunday school this morning just about we Love ourselves. We worship ourselves. If we're not worshiping the one true Christ, we are worshiping self, period. Um, So we do have love inherently, but it's for me. And that's nothing wrong with that, but the Bible clearly teaches us over and over again that the imperative is to look outside of ourselves, to step outside of the bounds of comfort, and to have true and honoring love for others. So, how did the early church express love? Well, it was so distinguishing in that society, as we kind of alluded to, that, uh, that there was some commentary. Tertullian wrote in the Apology in AD 197. It says, quote, But it's mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say how they love one another for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See, they say about us, how they are ready to die for one another, for they, would, for they themselves would sooner kill. Justin Martyr wrote around AD 150, he says, quote, We formerly delighted in fornication, but now embrace chastity alone. We who formerly used magical arts dedicate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock and share with everyone in need. We who hated and destroyed one another and because of their different customs would not live with men of a different tribe. Now, since the coming of Christ, live familiar with them, pray for our enemies, and try to persuade those who hate us unjustly to live comfortably, Conformably to the good precepts of Christ, so that they may become partakers with us of the same joyful hope of a reward from God and ruler of all. So, the whole, the first early church was set apart. Once again, that just kind of gives you the context of the society in which they lived that there's something different about this group. How in the world do they, you know, they feed widows, they feed orphans, they, uh, they, these, this guy over here who was once of this group and this tribe is communing with this guy. This tri- What happened? These guys should be, you know, chopping each other's heads open with axes or something. They shouldn't be, uh, you know, praying with one another. So what is the difference? Well, are we so different? You know, we, weren't, we once were formerly known by the marks of the flesh, particularly hatred. But Christ changes that in a believer. I think of myself, you know, as I shared in Sunday school this morning, for those who were there, I, you know, I came to faith at, you know, young age, about 17. But, you know, my teenage years, just through a lot of rebellion, had a lot of rebellion in my heart, and I had a lot of hatred for other people. I remember that. I remember that very clearly. I remember just, if, if you crossed me, I would just sat- satisfy myself with just, giving in to full burning hatred towards a person. It didn't mean I always acted out in that physically, but I knew what went on in my heart. So I can tell you, you know, from experience that after Christ came in and convicted me of that and showed me my sin, I, you know, I repented of that and he replaced it with a deep and abiding love for my fellow man. And so the truth is that I cannot honestly, no matter how horrendous the enemy that we hear about on the news, I can't sit there and say that there's anybody that I truly hate. Why? Because Christ has taken out that heart of hatred that so characterized me and put in a heart of love. And so the truth, beloved, is this. To not love others is to hate them to a certain degree. Also, we find out that what we pass off for love usually isn't love at all. Usually, it's a cheap imitation. As we kind of already alluded to, all of our acts of love were are usually self focused. They usually have us at the at the end. We're the ones with the uh, that have the we're we're the shining star in our own hearts, if you will. So, but even as believers, we can still act very selfishly in our acts of love to one another. We give to this particular cause because we feel perhaps a little bit more holy because we've done that. Sometimes we sound our horn before we do a good and godly act just as the Pharisees did. And we're not that different. We tend to look at these things in Scripture and say, yeah, that's not me, but really it is. And I know we all still struggle with that. Many of us do. Another issue that I find is that the English language does not convey the term to love in the same way that other languages do. Um, take, for example, Greek. We know the, you know, the, the idea that, that there's you know, several terms used for love. But they describe a different aspect of love. They convey a different order of things. So in a different context. Agape, we know about that one. It's a deep abiding love for one another in a spiritual sense. But here's the thing about it. It is focused on others' welfare. It's focused on others' welfare. That's the type of love that we are to have for one another. Um, it's a good description of this is in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition, rivalry, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we are called to have a higher level of love. We're called to have that self-sacrificing, adoring love for others, the one that quite unnaturally puts them first and puts Uh, and and puts uh, ourselves last. You know, I think, you know, I sit here and say, I tell my children this all the time. The truth is, I need to practice it myself. That we constantly need to put the other's needs above us because all we ever hear is, well, he did that or she did this or whatever the case may be. But are we, you know, usually we go down the path of, well, are you willing to be wronged? You know, and truth is many times I'm not, (laughs) but that's something we can all learn from. So having that agape love. We also have the term eros. Eros is a sensual love. It's more physical in nature, though it doesn't have to be. Uh, It can be from hugs to anything further from that, but it's more of a more of a physical type love. Philia is brotherly love that is more general in nature but even that has give and take. That's more on a business level. You know, I'm kindly affectionate to those around me on my business level. And, you know, I'm going to treat them fairly, they treat me fairly, and so forth. You know, love is also cheapened today by saying in the English language once again, oh, I just love this. I love that. Man, I love chocolate ice cream, especially if it's bluebell. Bell. Um, that is the best. You know, I love this stuff. It's awesome. But you know what? That's not a good description of the word love. So we can, uh, we also have the, you know, just as we talked about the selfishness of our love. Hear what Spurgeon has to say about this. He says this, quote, Do not pretend to a love that you do not have. Do not lard your speech with dear this and dear that when there's no love in your heart. And even if your heart be full of love, show it without spreading molasses over your talk, as some do. Let love be without dissimulation, as hypocrisy. So, you know, when we sit here and we say, you know, let us be real with one another. You know, I don't want to sit here and go up and just, you know paint sunshine all over somebody when i know that i'm hiding something in my heart that i have against them i don't want to just sit here and in my heart or amongst my friends when they're not around sit here and kind of gossip and talk about it. i can't believe they did this can't believe adam did this to me and they uh but then when i see adam i'm like hey bro what's up man how's you walk you walking well you know i don't want to be like that that's fake that's that's unloving to him and it's unloving to the lord So, talking about our uh, selfishness, true love does not seek its own well-being. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist upon its own way, it's not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. So it's not seeking its own way. It's not always reaching out to do something in order to get something in return. It suffers in the face of the wrong, something I just kind of alluded to. Romans 12, 19, further on in this same passage says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Love is shown in helping those who cannot pay back. Think about the poor. Love is not a tit-for-tat. You do this for me, I do it for you. It's giving without getting in return. We should not seek to feed our own egos by helping the poor. Our motives should be pure. That's what we're called to. And so often we want to satiate our fleshly desires and say, look what I did, self. You are mighty good today. You gave to that guy on the corner. You gave this guy an apple. You, know, you bought this guy lunch. But why, why did you do it? Did you do it for the glory of God? Did you go do it for the furtherance of the gospel? What if that person turns around and goes and, you know, you give him some money and he goes and does something you don't approve of with it, you know. Truth is, that be on him. You just make sure your motives are pure. Make sure that the love that you express to them, and wisdom should be, uh, is is holy and righteous and good. We're told in Romans uh, 12 that that one... Love one another, brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's the one way that you can be competitive. Outdo one another in honoring the other one. You ever think about that? That's kind of antithetical to the way we live our lives. Outdo one another by serving your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, whomever it may be, your co-worker. Because when you are showing love in the way that Christ has commanded us, you are fulfilling the law. We learn about that Romans thirteen ten. that it doesn't do any wrong to a neighbor. So really, when you boil down the, all the Ten Commandments, you know, you're, if you put them in a pot, I sometimes say, and you boil them down and reduce them, you're left with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's funny. All of that comes right back to love. It fulfills the law. And so you have to ask yourself, what are my motivations when I show love? Am I showing true love? Or the things that I pass off of? What are my motivations? Am I reaching? If I'm doing something to get something in return, am I doing something to, uh, to uh, so that I might be glorified? Or are my motives like the motives of Christ, who is our perfect example of humility and love? It says that God is love. You know, we, in, in Philippians 2, verse 8, says, And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He, took, he was the ultimate example of humility. And ultimately, everything we're talking about boils down to humility. Taking a very low view of self and a very high view of others. Christ did that in the incarnation when he stepped out of the glory of eternity in heaven and came down and condescended to men of lower estates and he came down into into the human form and ultimately culminated that into the cross so as we move on here just reiterate that all of this is so much what we're talking about in Christian love is because it is the bedrock foundation that's so foreign to us we would never be able to understand the rest of the, the passage that we read this morning through verse 21. We wouldn't be able to understand it if we didn't get the love aspect first because there's a great deal wrapped up into that. So Christ is the fountain source of love. He is the one that we should go to to get this thing that is so foreign to us that we can't find within ourselves. Christ is the fountain source of love. That's where Elmer went, a guy we read about in the beginning. That's where Peter went and Paul and Newton and every other believer that has come to Christ. You all have to go to Christ. You have to go to him to have him reveal what true love is and then to change your heart and then to uh, allow you to, uh, instead of abiding in death, to abide in life and abide in love so that you would be empowered to do such things as we're talking about. So if your motives do seek their own, they are not loving motives at all. They're self-focused and they're hypocritical. Webster's Dictionary defines hypocrisy as not genuine, a feigning to be what one is not, a concealment of one's real character or motives, a deceitful show of good character in morals or religion. So we see that uh, played out in the lives of the Pharisees and Judas. They were the consummate hypocrites, right? They were the Pharisees were the ones that Christ was constantly having, teaching against, preaching against, uh, you know, flat-out calling them what they were, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You look great on the outside, but you are lifeless and ugly on the inside. You do not have the renewed spirit of Christ. You do not have the renewing spirit of Christ, Hypocrisy is the exact opposite of love. It is evil. And the two cannot coexist. You cannot be both true, biblically loving to your neighbor and be a hypocrite at the same time. So we move on then to the second portion of verse 9. It says, abhor what is evil. And I love that word abhor because it conjures up to me an absolute horrid hatred of something. And that is the way that we are to look at evil. We're supposed to detest it. We have to hate it. You say, wow, okay, well, I'm not supposed to be hateful about anything. You know, I'm a Christian, right? It's okay to hate evil. Really? Prove it. Proverbs eight thirteen: The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. As God abhors evil so also should we. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What evil do we justify or tolerate in our lives? In his book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, John Owen presents the following thesis. He said, The choicest believers... Are, who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business in all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. To mortify us, to slay it, to put it to death. I always think of a very good sermon by John MacArthur I heard um, where he talks about where, you know, Saul went out to fight the Amalekites. He was told to utterly destroy them. And he did, except for some of the choicest treasures, some of the sheep, some of the donkeys. Oh, and the Amalekite king, Agag. So when Samuel shows up, he says, Saul's very proud and puffed up. He says, look, I've done all that the Lord has commanded. And he says, of course, well, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear then? You know, ultimately, as a, you know the story, and it went on that when Samuel, he finished what Saul should have started. He took a sword, and the Bible says he hacked Agag to pieces. And I love how MacArthur talks about it. He says that is the way we should treat indwelling sin in our life. We should not tolerate the slightest portion of it. Just as the sin that Saul did was seemed minuscule, well, he, you know, he saved some of the best stuff he was going to make an offering to the Lord. He did not do what he was commanded. To obey is better than sacrifice, he was told. So just as Agag was hacked to pieces, we also must not tolerate those pet sins in our lives. Do we honor Christ on one hand and yet wink an eye at sin at the other, with the other? Do you love what is evil? As we said, evil is the complete antithesis, the opposite of holiness. Listen to this. As much as we are to love, we should also hate evil to that same degree. Psalm 9710 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil imperative hate evil do it think about it paul spent most of romans 7 talking about his hatred of sin so when we do not hate evil we coddle it we nurture it and then it takes root and it grows Uh, i learned at vacation bible school recently a very very deeply theological term that nick taught me it's called fifi and I had never heard it before, but it was about that pet sin. It's like a little Fifi dog, you know, that you see people sitting there holding and coddling. You know, the Bible tells us to slay that thing. Um, evil should shock us. If evil does not shock you, then there is a heart problem, there's something going on, you know. If we do not weed our garden, the weeds will grow. I was weeding my garden this weekend, and it seems like I just did it. I let several days go by, and there's a whole bunch more weeds in it. I had to do it again because if I don't, I've learned I think even Nick mentioned this last week. Yes, it grows, and it, it will take over the place. Use up all the resources of what you've worked so hard to put into your soil. Again, John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So don't just avoid evil. You've got to flee from it. Remember Joseph? When he was tempted, he was, uh, and Potiphar's wife stripped him of his clothing. He didn't stand around and say, well, I think I'm spiritual enough to handle this. He ran. He fled. He just, you know, dealt with the shame of being, you know, uh, you know having a runaway naked, but he did it. So 2 Timothy 2.22 says, so flee youthful passions. Flee it. Our passions are not that we're to flee, and you know, we get used to thinking. Oh, it's you know talking about sexual sins and things like. It's not always sexual sins. It's not always things like that. It can be envy. How many have ever envied someone? How many have ever uh, gossiped? Have you ever been arrogant in your own heart? These are the things that we are to that we are to flee to run away from. And it goes on to say, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Okay, so it tells you in this verse, don't just flee from it. It gives you, that gives you the put off, if you will. The Bible has a lot of put off and a lot of put on. That's a put off. Flee youthful passions. But, put this on, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord of a pure heart. These are the things you're to pursue. Where are you going to find them? Well, you're going to find them in the company, in good company, in in the body of believers, in the church, okay? We got to surround ourselves with godly people because if we don't, we're going to be dragged down. It's going to be like an albatross around our neck, any kind of indwelling sin. It's just going to be like trying to swim and keep a you know, a boat anchor tied to us—it's going to overcome you once and uh, finally. So we are to—we are to love one another in the way that we talk about. We are to abhor and hate evil, hate those things, not tolerate the sin uh, you know small sins in our life. Be holy in all our conduct, and we are to cling to what is good, hold fast to what is good. The word cling comes from a Greek word that means to bind or to glue. I think actually even in terms of Velcro. You know, if you get you know, Velcro, you, you touch it to itself and it sticks. And it's, you know, it takes a definite force to peel it away. We're to bind ourselves, to attach ourselves well to the things that are good. So as we said, as much as we hate evil, we should cling to good things to that same degree. So if we have this entirely hurricane-sized hatred of evil, we should have an entirely hurricane-sized love of what is good and to cling to that and to hold fast to it, to glue ourselves to it. We've got to keep thinking and affixing ourselves to whatever is good, inherently right, and worthy. So you say, well, where's that? Okay, well... Philippians 4a, you know it. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. So kind of getting back to our put off, you're struggling with uh, the sins of your mind. You're struggling with things that, you know, whatever it is that has come up into there. Turn from that. Well, okay, I'm not going to think about those things. Okay, what am I going to do? Well... You can memorize Philippians 4.8. You can think about it. You're putting on holiness. You're putting on godliness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and twenty says, But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Then it says, Abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from it. Get away from it. It's, if, it's even, if it's evil in its nature, don't flirt around with it. Don't kick around the edges and kind of step in and then step out and think, I can toe the line and walk the line. You're going to fall over. You're going to get wrapped up because, you know, it's funny because sin doesn't just, and evil doesn't just, uh, you know, kind of sit there passively while you're doing that. It's got tentacles. It's going to reach up. It's going to lash around you, and it's going to pull you in. So the best thing is to flee those things. Run away from them. Keep a good distance between yourself and the things that are unholy, both physically, the places you go, the people you hang out with, and then also with, uh, in, with regards to your mind. So you saturate your mind with God's word. That is your f- you feed from God's word. The more that we love God's word, the more that we love God, the more satisfied in him that we are, and the more time we'll spend in his word and in prayer. It's a big circle. You love the Lord, you want to know what he has to say. You're going to read his word. The more that you read his word, the Holy Spirit works within your life to produce more of these marks in your life, and to produce more of these good godly fruit. And the more that you do that, the more you're drawn to the God that you love. And the more that you are drawn to him, the more you want to know his word, and so on and so forth. The talk, you know, Bible talks about abiding in him. And that's just what that's regarding. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So I ask you, Is reading God's word a chore for you? Is it difficult? It is for me. It's tough. It takes definite forethought. It takes definite, um, uh, you know, just willpower at times just to say, look, I'm not going to do these things over here until I deal with the word of God. It's tough. We're busy. I get it. It's not lost on me. But we still must prioritize that in our life. So if we ask God for a great desire to read His Word, is that a is that a prayer that honors the Lord? It is. Is it something that He will that He will uh, then answer? You bet it is. He's answered that in my life. When I sit there and pray, Lord, I'm so tired in the morning. I mean, I get up. It wears on. By the end of the week, I have a harder and harder time getting up in order to study the Word. But instead, I have this tendency by the time my last day of work rolls around, I wake up uh, just in time to dress and get out the door. And the times that I find that I ask the Lord, Lord, give me strength. Give me the physical power over the flesh in the morning to get up and read your word. And you know what? He honors it. He's honored it every single time without fail. So surround yourself with God's people. Right, what are you doing this morning? Corporate worship. Midweek, we have small groups meeting in various locales around the county. Seek out believers at work. I've been tremendously blessed by some fellow believers that the Lord has uh, both saved while I've been in the place of where I'm working and, also, and he's been growing them, discipling them, and also some other guys who've been hired in that have been believers. And it's fantastic, but you know, for a long time, I didn't have all that. Still, I was called to show... Uh, to to stand for Christ in a world and to stand out just as we read about from Tertullian and so forth to stand out and people see the difference in your life because man when you if you're in a dark room and you light a candle or a a flashlight you can see it you can't see it when it's all sunny outside in, in June in Savannah, Georgia but you can see it when it's dark backdrop around it so that's the way that we are to be so lastly as we conclude are we are you God's child Do you love the things that he loves and do you hate the things that he hates? If so, there's some imperatives. Pursue righteousness. Pursue faith, love, and peace. Do it. Ask the Lord to give you those, the the desires that we spoke of. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision or forethought for the flesh. Romans 13, 14 tells us, don't Make a don't sit there and think, okay, you know, I'm wrapped up in this sin. I can't wait till I get to this place and I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself in a position where I might be in you know tempted to sin. You gotta recognize that. You know? If um, if the things that if the things that if if you if you're, you have struggled with alcohol in the past, if that's something that you struggle with, brother, you don't need to be daily going by your old stomping ground on the way to work and saying you know, the place where you, you know, spent many years sitting at a bar stool and, you know, satiating that lust. If you are, uh, you know, if you've struggled with uh, things that you've looked at on the computer, you don't need to be sitting here thinking, wait, I'm going to wait until wife and kids are away and I've got this to look at. You know, I, I'm i I'm holy enough to deal with this. No, you don't need to even put that yourself in the sense, in the place where you'd be tempted to sin. If you are, go to your brother. Pray to the Lord. Confess to someone. I'm struggling with these things, you know. Call somebody up to pray with you. Call me up. I'll do it. I'll probably have something to confess to you too, needing to pray for. So it, it works both ways. Um, so let us examine ourselves in the things that we call entertainment, okay? It's not just in forms of electronics that we are entertained, but think about the things that we laugh at. Are we hating evil? Are we clinging to good? Are we laughing at sin, the things that God hates? Are we sitting there uh, as we look at a television program and say, you know, uh, you know, we're let's face it, today on just about every television show it has its token homosexual, and the world views those things through uh, as a very lighthearted and funny, and if, you're, you know, if you say that's wrong and evil, then, you know, and then, uh, you know, you're the one that's you know looking like you got an egg growing out of your head or something. But the truth is, are we laughing at sin? Think about those things that we look at on television, and so forth. Are we seeking to look like Christ spiritually and physically? Are we seeking to put on a modest heart, to have that heart that uh, that does not call attention to self? So pray for understanding and pray for these things to be real in your life. And I promise you, God will show you and will empower you to walk in holiness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is a tremendous and weighty thing to be able to stand here and to exhort the body this morning in areas where I certainly stumble and fall. Father, I... I know that in myself there is nothing that I have to say. I can't speak from a position of authority having conquered these things. But, Lord, I do seek to love others as you would have me to. I do want to seek to follow the example of Christ and how he loved all mankind in order to give himself. Father, and I pray that you will make us examine ourselves. How do we love? Question our motives. What is it about what we do and how I do it? Why am I doing it? Lord, I pray that you will have us to examine our hearts, our minds. Help us to hate the things that you hate. Help us to not coddle them. Help us to not keep that one remaining vestige of sin active and healthy in our life, whether it's fed in a little corner in the box just to keep it along. Lord, let us... Look to just purge our hearts and our minds and our lives of the things that you do not love. And let us put on the love of Christ for a fellow man, for the things that you hate, and, or for the things that you love. Lord, and I pray that you will help us to hold fast, to cling tightly, gluing ourselves to the things that are good and wonderful and righteous and pure and holy. Lord, it is, this, it is so contrary to our nature. But teach us, Lord. Grow us, mold us, and make us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit and the written Word, in Christ's name. Amen.